don't know this, then you're behind the times. The only metric that matters is convenience. Rules apply to you. Suddenly you're an advertiser. This week on Social Minds. Respect each platform. Respect your audience on each platform. They're there for themselves. We were joined by David Greiner, who is the creative and innovation editor at Adweek and the host of Adweek's own podcast, which is called Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. Yes, what does make the cut in this day and age in terms of the campaigns that get featured on Adweek, especially at a time when social is competing on the same level as press, TV and out of home. In our discussion with David, we covered the untapped power of Twitter, whether a sassy tone of voice still holds true in 2020, and how to get featured by one of the biggest advertising publications on the planet. I think if you have clients who don't let you talk at all, don't let you talk to the press, don't let you acknowledge that you even did the work, which that happens, you have a toxic client. All this and more coming up. What makes Social First Creative worthy of an ad week feature? I mean, that, that's a that's a big question. I mean, first of all, thank you for having me here. I've been really looking forward to this. Nice to have you. Yeah, I've been, I've been like I said, really looking forward to this conversation. I think the big picture that I guess I'll start with is just that what we are looking for, you know, I've been writing for Adweek for about 13 years, and I've been in this role for several years now, leading our creative coverage, but I've been writing about creative that whole time. And, you know, to me, it's just about, we want to see a good idea, and we want to see an idea that gets people thinking and feeling and sharing. I think the biggest thing that's changed for people who've been in advertising for quite a while is that we're, we no longer fetishize craft necessarily. I love to see it. I love to see a great idea executed flawlessly, right? That's that's as good as it gets. But if I have to have one or the other, I'd rather have a great idea executed, you know, swiftly, nimbly in a way that's that's kind of really relevant to, to culture. And then, then to have one that's perfectly executed, but kind of mediocre or even worse these days, late, right? <laughs> like you don't want to be late to the conversation. So I think that's what we look for is just a great idea and preferably something new and different. And I always say, you know, it's better to be first and pretty good than to be seventh and perfect because people are just done listening to a clever idea by the time it's been iterated six, seven times by brands, especially. So that's, I guess, the the big picture. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, David, for you, I guess, because your role specifically is the creative and innovation editor at Adweek. I want to know how you would define creativity and innovation um, in 2020, because obviously that's a term that has changed over the years with new technologies and such. So, you know, depending on where we are now, how do you define that? Well, I think like I I think about this a lot in terms of because we have a lot of different departments here at Adweek. We have a lot of different teams that are all experts in different aspects of the marketing world. And I guess what I think about a lot is that certain marketing problems require creative solutions and certain problems require technical solutions or strategic solutions. Those certainly overlap, right? Like those, those it's not a it's not a bunch of separate circles, you know, it is a Venn diagram. But that said, I think there are creatively led solutions. And that's when when I think creativity is the driving factor of solving a problem. That's when I guess I come in. And so defining defining creativity is, you know, famously difficult. So Steve Jobs, you know, said that creativity is just, you know, connecting things together, uh, which I think is reductive, but also pretty accurate. Just in the the greatest the greatest creative ideas usually say, what if we took this and applied it to this? Like, what if we made this feel like you're in an Uber, but you're actually getting car insurance or what? You know what I mean? It's like you find weird, cool connections, and then innovation. The reason that those two have kind of overlapped under my uh, 
oversight at Adweek is because so much of early adoption and playing with the technology of, of emerging tech is creative, right? Is, fine, is creative proof of concept of these technologies because like the hardware works generally, but it's a matter, it's about proving that these things have creative value as, as a medium, as a tool. And that's where those two worlds kind of overlap for me. Yeah. I mean, with social media, say specifically, how like common do you think it is for brands to really be able to innovate? And I ask that because it is such a saturated space and obviously everyone's done everything now. And, you know, that whole saying where like there's no such thing as an original idea, you know, is it is it right for us to expect brands to constantly innovate or are they able to do that? I mean, I think they have to in, in a certain level. I think you can definitely never get comfortable, even with social brands that are well known, like Wendy's, of course, is one that a lot of people mention. And I, I don't think the Wendy's tone, I think the Wendy's tone was very innovative when it came out. It was a real point of differentiation for the brand. It was a real departure for the brand to be this kind of, you know, it's, it's of course, it's a, a fast food chain that competes with many other uh, fast food chains with larger budgets, but they really embrace this kind of catty, sarcastic, biting voice in social and at the time, that was a real differentiator because a lot of people on the Internet were talking like that, but not necessarily in brands. But I don't think that has held up well in the quarantine era, you know, and I, I don't think that tone makes as much sense. And I think Wendy's specifically really struggled and they made some really bad mistakes along the way because that attitude, that tone did not it did not age well going into this really emotionally devastating year where we're all kind of just trying to keep each other, you know, put together and, and just trying to make it through the day. You don't need someone being like, ah, go to hell if you don't eat our burgers, you know? And so so I think brands have to constantly at least have a base level of evolving with the times. And, and just real, real quick, not to get on a tangent, but this is something I kind of like started ranting about on Twitter the other day. There's this, there's this super obnoxious perspective that you hear thrown around every once in a while about brands acting like teenagers or acting like 20-year-olds or whatever when they use internet slang or when they use popular lingo. I think that's like the dumbest take. I, I really hate that perspective because it implies that internet culture, that popular culture, which is a shared experience, right? right? It's a constantly evolving, just like the rest of language. It's always changing. And yet, you know, it doesn't belong to a certain age of person. It's not like you're somehow pretending to be young you're just showing that you pay attention to how language evolves in real time and you're and you're adapting your sense of humor to that. That's all, that's all I think brands need to do is just show that same base level of kind of keeping track of where the world is going and trying to ride along with it rather than digging in their heels and being like, no, these are our brand standards and we're going to hold them until the year 2074, you know? Yeah, which that happens too. Mm -hmm. and, and given that, David, I want to go back to something that you mentioned as well, because this sort of ties into this conversation around craft, would you say there are probably a lot of brands, especially on social, that are still obsessed with that craft and only believe that, you know, the most highly awarded ads have to be, you know, beautiful things of art, really? I mean, I think you see that in Instagram heavy brands. No surprise, right? I think Twitter and TikTok especially are departures from that. I, I think there are brands who still continue to pump their social marketing or what they consider social marketing is basically just a square or whatever crop of the stuff 
they were already putting out, right? Like if Prada or whoever makes a two minute short film with Jake Gyllenhaal and whoever else, like they're gonna they're gonna crop it and put it on Instagram, and and that's gonna be their content. And I, I mean, I, you cool. Like I mean, I'm not here to say that doesn't work, but I would say they are the exception, and they are really using social as a you know as like a, an, a just a bolted on appendage to a marketing plan that they've probably been doing for decades. I think in general, like social savvy brands, socially social media marketers don't obsess over craft because they don't have the the luxury of time. They're not like Hermé or whatever, putting out one ad a year. They, they have to crank out content every day. So it's like, yeah, you want your jokes to land. You don't want anything to, to make you look bad. But, you know, I don't think I don't think many social driven brands or brand marketers are are obsessing with craft the way that, you know, your Under Armors and some of these other brands probably still do. And craft aside, what are you tired of seeing? Because you must in your industry see patterns within creativity, just like a graphic designer sees patterns within design. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I try not to be one of those people who's like, oh, I'm so over this. I think there is a part in the bell curve of content going viral or becoming a trend or a meme. I think that bell curve is a lot wider than people give it credit for. I I think jokes are still funny uh, a week or two later. But I mean, I think you should move quickly. But I don't think things move past as quickly as people think they do. But that said, I also enjoy when a meme or something is about to die and then someone resurrects it in a really interesting way. And so sometimes I'm like, I'm totally tired of something or I think I'm tired of something. And then someone just like tweaks it. And you see this on TikTok every day, right? Like just as a meme of audio is getting old and you're kind of just tired of hearing that same audio, someone tacks on a a different punchline, right? Like they'll put a slightly different joke at the end. And, you know, and that that to me is what keeps it fresh and interesting and keeps it evolving. So, I mean, that's not an answer to your question, but I, I think what I'm tired of is seeing brands who think there are rules and that you can almost see the PowerPoints that their teams have shown of here are how your competitors are running their social accounts. Here is how the industry leaders are running their social accounts. Therefore, that's how we should run our social accounts. There are no rules. If everyone's following those like the same rules, you know, it goes back to old best practice that you'd read on like, I don't know, like Hootsuite or HubSpot blogs and like they put out the same advice and everyone ends up following the same things and I guess come out with the same work. I mean, sort of speaking of rules, I want to ask about like things like awards and PR features um, in magazines like Adweek and, uh, and other publishers. If there are requirements, I mean, they certainly are for awards to get your work seen and noticed. Do you think those might be hindering creativity uh, in terms of the work because everyone is sort of following the same standards or doing it for the purpose of getting something? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and I don't know. It's something where I, I love awards. I mean, we we give several awards. I'm on a few awards juries. So, I mean, maybe I'm kind of in bed with it. But but I mean, even before then, I love awards. I'm like one of the few dorks who goes to Cannes and actually really enjoys the press conferences. And I like arguing with the jurors at the press conferences, uh, you know, who are the most like famous creative leaders around the world. And I love like going just scrapping with them over why they pick something and, you know, really forcing them to justify those decisions because I do think they matter. And I think they do not show the most effective marketing. I think we can all move past that. And people who have beefs with that, those beefs are valid, but they're also boring. You know, just, okay, yeah. No, I mean, awards are not about, some are, sure. Okay, there are the Effies and whatever. There are awards that are about effectiveness. But most creative awards are about creativity. And and once you've been on a jury, once you've seen the dynamic of those or just talked to people, there is a lot of value in the industry to that kind of work. All that said, I, I, 
I personally don't think anyone should waste their time with spec work unless you've really exhausted every other avenue of building out a book. You know, when people try to mimic the stuff that's in award shows that that's in, you know, annuals or whatever. Um, like I get it. That used to be the way that creatives could really prove their chops. I think these days, for better or worse, you know, people want to see that you've built something on the side, that you've created a thing because you that's just more real. Like you can make up a Burger King ad right now. And I don't know, maybe Burger King would run it and maybe it'd be clever, but you're you're making it up in a vacuum. You're not making it up through any actual creative reviewed process. And so you're just like, here's what I would do for Mercedes. Okay, well, good luck getting it through like seven rounds of, of review. You know, so, so there's a certain kind of mythology to that anyway. But I think side hustles or just creating things on the side, although there's some really valid debate about whether agencies are now kind of fetishizing those too much and whether that puts too much pressure on people to like work a day job and then go home and like have a side beat and like have a thing, a business you're running on the side. I don't, I don't think it should be required, but I think you learn so much and you really express so much about your, your personal, like what you bring to the industry by launching something, even if it's just limited time, like don't launch something you're going to have to maintain forever unless you're really committed to it. Cause I've done that and it's, it's a bad move, you know, launch something that, you know, it's like, I, I worked with one of my colleagues to create a AI bot uh, that writes Super Bowl ads. We did it because we wanted to play around with GPT-2, which is the platform that drives some of the more advanced um, AI content generation. We just wanted to play with it. We just, we covered it a lot. We just wanted to see how it works and we wanted to have fun. So we wrote a bot and it ended up winning a Shorty Award, which is cool and ended up getting a lot of attention. And we even had people during the Super Bowl tweeting like that ad sounded like it was written by Adweek Super Bowl bot, you know, and that's cool. But to me, it's just like, that's how you learn. That's how you advance. And and to me, that's a little better than trying to trying to be the next, you know, multi-whopper. Yeah, no, definitely. I think those are like, I'm going to say the horrible word, but I think that's probably a bit more authentic um, to approach awards that way in terms of you did actually do just, uh, you know, do something just because you enjoyed it, or you were having fun with it, and it ends up getting an award for that reason. Whereas I think, like you said, if people try and like copy the standard of what they've been seeing in award shows, that's when you end up with, you know, copycat work and seeing a lot of the same stuff. Yeah. And it's a, it's a grimy industry. I, I don't begrudge anybody who, who dislikes awards. And again, we run several and we try to keep them really, I guess we run them the way that we would want them run, right? Like I created our podcast of the year awards and our out of home impact awards. And I set them up in the way that I think awards should work. You know, they're not pay for play. They're not, they're judged by professionals who are active in this, in these spaces, you know, just all the stuff that you would hope that an, that an award show, the prices aren't out of control. You know, we're not making a huge fortune off of it. So, I mean, I think there are ones that accomplish those better. My, my only pet peeve, not to pick on any competitors that I won't name, is that some magazines do put out like agency of the year awards, which we do as well. But we pick them based on who we think are the best agencies of the year. That's it. That's that's the whole thing. Others make you apply and pay them a lot of money to apply. So they're not they're not naming the agency of the year. They're naming the best of the agencies that paid them to be considered. Like we don't ask, we don't ask for anything. And so there are times where I think you should look a little askance at certain awards programs where it's very much like this is just the best of what we've got you know yeah it's always the same pool and, yeah. and ceremonies aside david focusing more on the press and publications and like the industry often gets accused of sort of you know giving itself a bit of a pat on the back what do you think is the correlation when it comes to sort of uh featured work and, and moving further down the line actual effectiveness because it's a it's a, i suppose it's a funny thing that case studies don't necessarily make news stories but the new burger king ad or the new ad 
crowd from whoever will make a case story. And we judge it again on its art and its craft before we've even sort of realized, you know, the numbers that it did, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. And this is something that comes up a lot behind the scenes, at least with me and with my team is, you know, every once in a while, someone, especially at a conference after they've had a drink or two, they'll be like, you know what bothers me about Adweek? <laughs> you guys cover these campaigns, but you don't cover the, re- you know, you don't cover results. And they'll say, like, I worked on this campaign that increased sales by 1,400%. And just because it didn't have a big, sexy commercial or didn't whatever, then you guys didn't cover it. And so, you know, we'll hear that maybe from, like, SEO people or digital optimizer or performance marketing people. And we do cover those things. The, the, and every time I tell the people the same thing, like, send it to me. I'll write it up now, man. I don't care. Like, I don't care if it was a few months ago. That's still a good story. Send it to me tomorrow. I will tell you 100% of the time I get the same response, which is, yeah, so the client says we're not allowed to release those numbers. So, <laughs> Classic. Uh, that is 100% of the time. Case studies for awards, God bless them, this is something they never get enough credit for, force clients to and agencies to negotiate on what they are willing to say in public, knowing that those case studies will, even if they try not to, will end up getting circulated very widely. And every year when there's a major campaign, whether it's, I don't know, Moldy Whopper or the Colin Kaepernick work from Nike was one I remember from White and Kennedy Portland. That's one where I kept asking him, like, tell me the results. What's going to go in the case study? I'd like to do a follow-up story and they were like we cannot nike is famously quite quiet on everything and so when that video came and i kept telling them like guys i mean once the video's done once you make the case study i'm going to see it like it's going to get out there someone from can is going to put it on youtube that happens every single year and it does and then we write about it but like if it weren't for those award showcase studies i think there's a lot of times we wouldn't know any results whatsoever results are really important and i think we certainly it's rare that we discuss the Colin Kaepernick work from Nike without discussing the tremendous results that that had for them as a brand and the value it added to their to their stock price and and the amount of shoes it sold. But then also you've got, I don't know how much attention it got um, in the UK, but the IHOP campaign from IHOP, the, the pancake chain, when they pretended to change their name to IHOP and then announced later that it was short for Burgers, International House of Burgers. That's one that a lot of people thought was dumb. A lot of people thought was silly. It was silly. It was dumb, but it was also genius. And their sales were just staggering, I'm like staggering. So, you know, that's one where I was like, I mean, sure, call it dumb, but they were pretty good. Droga 5 was pretty good about releasing the data that showed that that thing was. And IHOP, IHOP was very proud of it. They gave entire talks at Adweek events about the effectiveness of that campaign. So I think the best ones have both. I think it's I think you should look a little askance at a campaign where the the results are. We got press attention because, man, we'll write about anything. Don't don't use us as like your barometer of success. It's like if it's cool looking, if it's a neat idea, we'll write about it. Doesn't mean it worked. Uh, well, I was just going to say, David, I mean, that. That brings me up to a sort of follow up in a way, because I spend a lot of time on this podcast telling brands to, you know, relinquish control to creators and to be less protective. With that in mind, do you think we'll get we'll, we'll ever get to a point where brands are a bit more willing to kind of share the results like that? Or is it just something that's not up for debate? I think it'll go the opposite. I, I think they'll be more and more restrictive. I, I think I think this is part of a lot of work moving in-house is there there's a lot of politics. I mean, this won't surprise anyone who works in agencies or marketing or brands. There's a lot of politics involved. And when you have in-house talent working with agencies, you have multiple agencies, you have all this, they get even thought about discussing results and metrics because, I mean, depending who you ask, right? Sometimes it's because they don't want to sound like they're giving credit to a specific team or we all worked on it together or we don't want our competitors to know that. Whatever it is, they have a 
million reasons, but I think it's getting harder and harder to get really transparent information. A, a lot of agencies are no longer allowed to reach out to people like me directly, like because their brands want the brands want to do the, all the PR and do all the discussions themselves. Yeah, that's that's becoming quite common, which is fine, I guess, except that they hire like a PR firm and, you know, whatever, that's fine. But like the PR firm basically has their copy paste press release and they reach out to me the same way they would reach out to, I don't know, you know, the New York Times or USA Today or whoever. Well, we're different. We're different. Like I write about advertising for a living. You don't have to send me your nine paragraph release. You can literally send me two sentences and be like, hey, Griner, here's that thing. And the, and the good ones still do that. But I think some value has been lost in agents, in uh, brands kind of taking on a lot of the public public discussion themselves because their PR teams are like, what if we just don't say anything? And, you, you know, or what if we just announce this thing and then say, we're not going to talk about it? And that's pretty much becoming the norm. So sadly, I think we're going to see more of that before we see less. I find that, that there's a sort of massive irony in that, because uh, given the social conversation, one of the things we always talk about is the need for the departure away from vanity metrics that all of us can see, sorry. So your things like your likes and shares, you know, those things are out in public domain. We can see that. And we often tell brands to stop relying as much on that, rely on the things that matter on social. But yet, you know, like you said, there seems to be a breakdown in this kind of discourse of, of you know, yeah, no, that, that matters, but don't talk about it. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know about you, Theo, and like even like you as well, David, but whenever um, like we've posted case studies and stuff online, often sometimes the client's really good and are happy for us to put out numbers if that's like really bolstered the campaign or something to brag about. And sometimes the thing we're bragging about is a bit more conceptual. It's more to do with the creative. But I do find that a lot of the um, response that we get on social from sharing case studies and different work that we've done for clients, people are asking for the results and sort of using a lack of that um, being there for them to sort of jump in and judge it and say, well, people are quick to judge social first campaign anyway, if you're one of those types of people. But they always want to know exactly what it did and are very quick to say, okay, well, if you can't say this is how many conversions you had or this is how many sales you made, then it can't be that good. And I just think it's a shame that you're saying a lot of uh, brands are, you know, becoming even less forthcoming with those numbers when actually it can do quite a lot to prove to people that you're you're doing a really good job, no? Well, I mean, I think it just they don't care. And which I, I actually understand. Like if I'm a brand manager and I have a campaign that does really well, awesome. I'm glad that reflects well on me. It reflects well on my team, my bosses, my shareholders, whoever. Everyone's happy. What do I have to gain from anyone else finding out like what went into that and what came out of it? And I I feel awful even saying this because I literally spend every day arguing against that line of logic, but unfortunately I get it, right? And so you have these major brands in highly competitive environments who are proud of their agency's work, I hope. Uh, you know, it probably varies by relationship. But you look at someone like Nike and Wyden and Kennedy, they have a decades old relationship. They are maybe tied with like Media Arts Lab and, and Apple in terms of like having a really close. But in both cases, I can tell you both agencies are incredibly careful, I guess is the best way and reserved in discussing anything about it because both of those clients, Nike and Apple are, they're, they're quiet. They're quiet, you know, brands that don't want at all to talk about performance or about anything because honestly, they just don't care. As long as it's working for them, it doesn't do them any benefit. So sometimes you get a nice client who's like, I want you guys to succeed. If my agency grows and becomes more successful, then I will have better marketing, right? That is 
That is correct. That is the right way to think about it. I say as someone who previously worked at an agency and when we succeeded and grew, we got better and we got better talent. Some marketers get that, but honestly, most, most, yeah, I'd say most like they don't care, you know, and they're, they're just like, whatever. And they, they're still in this mindset of kind of squeezing the agency as hard as they can. I think the good ones know that it's a rising tide. And if the agency grows and continues and look at Media Arts Lab and all the work they do with Apple, like that's only gotten better over the years as Media Arts Lab's become, and they are a one client agency, like they only work with Apple. And so they kind of had to grow at the pace of Apple. Uh, but if Apple had like really squeezed them and kept them from growing, which I mean, not to get in the weeds of finances, but there are clients out there who will who will restrict agencies uh, on their profit margin. They'll say like, okay, in your contract, you know, you this, but but you're making too much profit off of us. And therefore we want you to make less. I've literally seen this and dude, like what, you know, may, may, again, maybe that is just un-American because that is patently un-American, but like, you know, if, if you think it's a fair amount to charge, like a fair amount to pay for your marketing, then who cares how profitable your agency is? Hopefully quite profitable, hopefully growing and getting better and attracting new talent. But I've watched clients just be like, I want you to make less money. Why? Why? Because because I can. That's such a shame. I mean, uh, David, what, what would your advice then be for agencies or people who work in agencies whose clients are perhaps on the quieter side or more private side? What would your strategy be for shouting about what you do without being able to say what you're doing? I mean, I I, th- I think it's fine to say, to, to be vague. Like, I don't think a lot of us, I, I read a lot of case studies, like a lot, like way more than any other human. And they're, they are rarely about the results, right? They are almost always about the execution, about the size of the client. I mean, if you see, oh, they did a campaign for Red Bull. Red Bull's another client that will not let you say a, a word about what you've done with them. But let's say that they let you post, you know, I don't know, uh, like a thing you did with them or with Instagram, you'll get a new client out of that. It, it Like no one's going to be like, I don't see results. I'm not going to hire this agency. They're going to say like, oh man, they did a big project with Instagram. They're probably pretty good. And so like, I think that's enough. I think if you have clients who don't let you talk at all, don't let you talk to the press, don't let you acknowledge that you even did the work, which that happens. You have a toxic client. Now, if it's a toxic client who pays you handsomely, then that's probably a worthwhile bargain. But it, but I have found in my experience that toxic clients do not pay handsomely. <laughs> and so it's almost like they are toxic people. And so it's rare. It's rare that that's a worthwhile. So, I mean, I think agencies are far too, for understandable reasons, they, they stick with toxic clients too readily and they ignore a lot of red flags in the pitch process. And if you have a client who's not excited about your success and in fact, who tries to suppress your success, that is a toxic client. And the sooner you leave them, the happier you will be. But a lot of agencies feel like they're they're locked in and they are, you know, it's an abusive relationship and they and they end up like getting their profit margins so whittled down that they're on life support. They can't leave this client, but they're on, you know, subsistence wages uh, with them. And sadly, I've seen that happen quite a bit. And then that client leaves anyway. You know, I, I worked at an agency that, that before I was there, lost one client and had to lay off 90% of their staff uh, because of that one, that one client. That's terrifying. And then they, they rebuilt after that. But their, their mantra after that was like, you know, diversify. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a lesson well learned, isn't it? Because a lot of people are like, oh, we've got, I don't know, you know, Netflix or whoever, this Ikea, I don't know, you've got some major brand and it's tempting to just go all in on that one brand, but it's all fun and games till they go somewhere else. Yeah, no, definitely.
families. Sometimes like lots of little ones bring in more business, don't they, than just one big one. But we want to move on to uh, social now because I know we're keen to talk about uh, various platforms um, and in terms of what you've seen from brands recently. I'm wondering which social platform you think currently presents brands with the biggest opportunity to innovate right now? Big question, I know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, well, and it's like, I'm sitting here thinking, do I want them there? Because my answer is TikTok, right? But do I want brands on TikTok? I follow a few brands on there and they're awful. I need to unfollow them. They don't add anything to to the platform for me as a user. They stick out like a sore thumb at the minute. Yeah, yeah. Because like it comes up and, and, you know, some of them are doing very human relatable content that looks like TikTok content because it is. It's like low budget. You know, they're just banging it out. It's like the early Instagram work before, like before Instagram became super pretty or, you know, the Vine days. So there are some, you know, and they do okay. But I think there's still a lot of room to innovate there. Adweek, just to give you an example, I mean, if we are a brand, which I guess we are, we've been on TikTok for a while, but we had kind of plateaued on on audience for a long time of like, let's say like 2000 followers. And we just hadn't really found a way to use that platform that felt natural to us, that felt like natural to TikTok. And then the other day we started doing a weekly video series. I mean, I say we, but it's it's really Jess Zafaris, who's our, our audience engagement editor, basically our social editor. She does a weekly roundup of like weird marketing news on TikTok. I think the first one got something like 750,000 views and 75,000 mm, likes. Bad. We've seen series do so well on TikTok. Yeah. And it like, so that first one went mega viral. I mean, for us, at least, I don't know. And our audience went, you know, we kept doing that. We're still doing these weekly roundups, but our audience went from 2000 a month ago to 24,000 yesterday. I haven't checked it today, but it's going up like a few thousand a day. And to me, the moral there is just like, it takes a while. We, I mean, we'd been on there a while and we just, we would stop posting. We would try something. It wouldn't work. We'd stop doing it. And then we ended up with a team, Jess, uh, who I mentioned, and, and Julian Gamboa, who's one of my coworkers. The three of us just have a Slack conversation going all day. I mean, all day and well into the night where it's just like, what if we did this? What if we did this? And we make fun of each other and we say like, we, sh- we could never do that. But then every once in a while we're like, yeah, okay, we could do that. And it's definitely a vibe of experimentation and, and fun and just trying to embrace the platform and embrace the fact that memes exhaust themselves, you know, pretty quickly, but that's okay. And so, I don't know, I feel like there's still room for brands to, to find something as long as they find something that clicks with their audience and with themselves, which of course is a generic piece of advice. But I mean, that's a hell of a platform and whatever happens with TikTok, whatever happens with Triller, you know, I think it is my go-to place for creative storytelling right now. And I can't, I can't get enough of it. It makes me so happy. And of course, Twitter, I still love, but I, I wouldn't say that there's a lot of room for innovation necessarily on Twitter. There's just a lot of room for experimentation on there. Do you think maybe TikTok is like, it's easy to innovate on there because it's so new and because it's so easy to grow or does it come down to like the features that are available on the different platforms? Like you said, Twitter, I mean, you're kind of limited to just sending a tweet really aren't you whereas obviously tiktok you have all these editing tools do you think that plays a part yeah i i mean i think i think tiktok is an open-ended creative platform in the sense that as long as you can record it and eventually post it probably vertically not everyone even does that you don't have to record it on your phone you can edit it yourself i used i got on tiktok on a personal level because i wanted to learn video editing in quarantine and so i made that a personal like mission and i did all that editing in final cut pro and then would upload the final product to to TikTok, that sounds obvious, but like Vine used to make that impossible, like literally physically impossible. 
and other platforms still make it a challenge sometimes. But so, I mean, the moral is you can do anything you want as long as it's within a minute. You can overlay text, you can drop in audio. But then at the same time, there are the brands, I think, don't understand how many limitations there are in TikTok in the sense of like your audio options for a brand are very limited. You probably cannot use the newest Cardi B song. You probably cannot use like any of the stuff that your fans are using because it is not brand approved. It is not marketing approved sound, which kind of forces you to be more creative, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. I think they've, we were speaking to them last week. They've got a royalty free music library now for brands. Um, but there are some, obviously this will be the bigger brands with bigger budgets that are making their own tracks for like certain campaigns to get around that. But but like, you know, if, if, if you're on TikTok though, do you want like royalty free music? Yeah, cool. Don't get me wrong. Great to have if you're making an original story, but that's not, that's not what TikTok is, right? TikTok TikTok started out as musically, it started out as a as a, a lip singing thing. And it to this day it remains something where a piece of audio from your favorite TV show or an obscure piece of audio from, let's say, the Jekyll and Hyde musical, which is like the hottest trend right now, like that blows up. But if brands can't use it, uh, which I'm not saying they should be able to, but you know what I mean. It's like I think brands sometimes would watch and be like, Well, my my kids made a video using this audio of uh Nick Offerman. So I want you to do you should do something like that. And then that puts, you know, the social teams kind of in that awkward place of having to be like, well, eh, rules are a little, rules are different for us. Yeah, I think that was quite a blow for brands, to be honest, having that barrier in place. But I've seen like some suggestions now where maybe if if they have this royalty free track and it's not too crap or they do design their own, then maybe like they have to be the ones to spur that and make that blow up, which is harder to do. But I guess that's that's what they'll do. Yeah. And I mean, you saw that with like Elf Cosmetics did that with Eyes Lip Face. You know, they created a viral smash. It, I mean, good on them. It was huge, huge success for them. But that's what you have to be willing to do. The same thing is underappreciated about about memes and GIFs is that, man, brands do not have the rights to use those. And they use them every day. They use them all the time. I do it too. Adweek does it. I mean, like we all do it, but it's technically not legal, right? Like you don't own the rights. And I, I've i interviewed the same lawyer about this several times over the years where he's like, well, technically you would have to have the approval of the, the rights holders of where that video footage originally ran. So let's say like NBC or whoever, then you would need the rights of the people in that footage. So Nick Offerman or whoever, then you would need the rights, uh, the permission of the person who created the GIF. I'm <laughs> getting any of that. Yeah, no one does it, do they? I had a brand steal one of my tweets the other week. No credit. Was like, cool, excuse me for likes. But it happens. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's where I think folks like you and, and me in my previous life as, you know, a social media strategist, like we have to be that wet blanket sometimes that's like, well, we can't actually do that because there's always going to be some person that will tell them they can and that will try to push the outer edge and whatever gifts like we've reached a point where unless you're using it in a paid marketing campaign, you can probably get away with a gif. But what you don't want is to use a Glenn Close gif and have Glenn Close come out after you and be like, listen, listen, Samsung, I didn't say you could use my image. Yeah, but that happens these days, especially I've seen if a brand say there was so many instances where certain brands were in the doghouse over the lack of response over Black Lives Matter. And then they'd use um, like a piece of unlicensed content. Maybe it had a celebrity in, and then they do call them and be like, nope, I don't like you anymore. Please don't use this. And yeah, that you're right. That's not a place you want to be in. Yeah. And I think sadly, again, that's kind of the downer of this job, right? Of being a social strategist is to be that person who says like, well, I know you see it all the time, but that doesn't mean we get to do it. But it, but at the same time, to your point, I mean, I think that's a good excuse to be creative. It's not an excuse not to. It's just showing that you got to work harder. I mean, brands have to innovate around those barriers, right? Yeah. And, 
Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, in terms of innovation then, on Twitter, I'm, you know, being a big Twitter advocate, keen to get your thoughts on uh, some of the updates there and the opportunities for brands, because we've seen stuff like audio tweets, we've seen hard replies, we've seen loads of updates coming in. And Twitter at the moment, we've been talking about it a lot, is a platform that we see as being quite underappreciated and quite, you know, cool for sort of just random, off-the-cuff, organic kind of content. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a huge Twitter fan. I've been on it since... Wow. 08. And uh, I will say that despite being on it for 12 years, just in the last two years, one year, maybe I've really fallen back in love with it. And it's hard to even like put a finger on why, but like it's my go to. It's my starting point of social. And I do think they don't get enough credit for what they're doing to try to limit hate speech. I mean, they're obviously it's not enough. It's never enough. But I think they're trying. I, I think they've the fact that they've been able to recruit some really incredible talent from the diversity front and inclusiveness front like uh, Goddess Rivera and people who I really admire and recruit and retain them. Meanwhile, you've seen... I mean, I won't like bother going down this road, but other tech platforms have lost those people because I I think the unspoken message being that they do not share those people's priorities. And so Twitter, like I, I love it. Some days it drives me insane, but I think there's a lot of room to experiment there. And honestly, it even goes outside it. Like play with the audio stuff, play with the new features. Sure. Have fun with the hidden replies or whatever it is. But in the end, I don't think brands barely scratch the surface of what you can do with just the basics of Twitter because they're so busy kind of following this years old boring playbook of like, you know, Mr. Peanut tweets about like, oh, I'm a peanut. I don't know how the world works, whatever. It's like, all right, that's fine. But, but you know, it's like on, on a lark the other day, I, I I created a choose your own adventure Twitter game where you can like launch your own agency. And I just did it because I wanted I wanted to do something creative. And honestly, after a week of writing, I don't go home and feel like writing again. So I was like, well, I'll do some fiction, but I'll do it in a way that's still kind of, you know, I don't in my wheelhouse. And so I started this thing called the agency. You could look up hashtag the agency if you want to find it. But, you know, and it's still going. I'm still I'm still trying to bang away at it as I can find time. But that's one where I was like, you know, I haven't I haven't had a lot of fun with polls, but I love when other people do. So let's do that. Like, I'll, I'll go I'll use polls to create an interactive adventure. And along the way, I found some some strengths and weaknesses of Twitter. Right. And then you find solutions, you find workarounds. But if you don't like constantly push yourselves and again, I'll go back to that three person slack room I'm in uh, every day and and I'm I'm always checking on my phone with my colleagues, Jess and Julian is, you know, they, the, the prevailing attitude is let's try it. Let's see how it goes. You know, no one's going to die. We're not going to offend anybody. Like, let's just, let's just try this out and see what we learn. And if you don't try those things, you'll never learn. You'll just sit there like chasing after whatever Denny's did. And so I think you have to have that energy, that enthusiasm, that, that permission from above to just like, yeah, whatever, as long as you're not like libeling anybody, go nuts. You know? So I, I want to put something to you there, David, because do you see Twitter? as being sort of overtaking Instagram in a way because more and more, you know, we hold, we usually hold a candle up to Instagram as like a place for creativity, but more and more it's becoming that kind of social commerce space, isn't it? Where the only objective is to kind of get somebody to purchase really. Whereas uh, Twitter is, uh, they've sort of, you know, got a bit of, they've got a bit of criticism in the past for not being so advertiser focused, for instance. 
So I don't know what you think, but it seems like we're going two slightly different ways. I mean, I, I guess maybe this very, I mean, I'm sure this varies by person. It's not to say I don't go to Instagram for conversations. Uh, Instagram's become basically a messaging app for me. I love stories, but it's, it is a place where there are certain people who I only talk to on Instagram. That's their preferred platform, but also that's where they prefer to post content, right? Mostly in stories. I barely ever look at my feed anymore. And again, I'm sure everyone's situation varies, but I do find that Instagram is a terrible platform for having public conversations with or just mass conversations. Twitter was launched to be with this mission of becoming a way to feel like you're texting with the world, uh, which is not always great, but, you know, it's accurate. And Instagram is very different. And so for me, if I have something to say and if I want to be a part of a larger conversation, I go to Twitter. Now, can I ask those same questions on Instagram? Sure. I can put up one of those like question, you know, tools and, and I can ask a question. But but sharing those replies to me is not a great UX. And it's clunky. Like there's just so much about responding to people and having conversations that aren't one on one on Instagram is to me very clunky. People can't jump into those conversations very easily, if at all. Uh, whereas on Twitter, all that stuff natively built in. Right. And and God, God knows I wouldn't do any of those things on Facebook these days. And so, like, that's why I think I go to Twitter, because I like not necessarily having arguments, but I like having conversations and talking about big issues and finding cool new people. And I've met people just in the past year on, on Twitter who've changed my life, you know, and to are now like I can't imagine my digital life every day without those people. And that's something I... I I'm sure that's happened once or twice on other platforms, but I'd be lying to you if I said it's if it's anything other than an outlier. You know, it's like I found some really cool people on TikTok. We are not friends. You know, I haven't gotten to know any of them. It's just like, oh, dig their content. I'll try to click like when I see it. You know, that's about the extent of it. And David, I, I have a theory, right? I'm going to put it to you and see what you think. But I think that I know earlier you mentioned that Instagram is this pretty place where everything's super edited and super like perfect. Um, and you said Twitter and TikTok don't don't share that. But, you know, recently we've been seeing, uh, obviously, TikTok becoming super culturally relevant and Twitter uh, becoming even more so over the last year or two um, than maybe it was five years ago, I'd argue. Do you think that has something to do with it? Because personally, I think Instagram is following in Facebook's footsteps a little where it is becoming less relevant. Do you think there's something that Twitter and TikTok share that other platforms don't, which is why they are so relevant to us right now? I, I do. I, I think that they are, and maybe this is specific to 2020, I think Twitter and TikTok make it okay to just be a complete mess. To just be to just be a, a flawed, broken human being, and as a flawed and broken human being, I love that, and I think a lot of people do. I think it bothers certain people because they've gotten so used to conveying a certain level of perfection, a certain level of unattainability, and I, I don't really give a crap about those people um, because I've never I've never liked those people. And man, TikTok, you can go on there and be you can you can be as I will say like sex positive as you want. And and be as like proud of yourself and your body as you want. And then the next the next video you post can be completely making fun of yourself and trying to look hideous, right? That's that's not only okay, it's beloved. Like those are the people who are like, if you if you don't take yourself seriously, but if you still feel like making a certain kind of content, you don't have to be one thing in the way that I think Instagram kind of tacitly enforces. But yeah, both with Twitter and and TikTok in very different ways, but but toward the same end. It's a place where I can go and I can just get 
get something off my chest or I can convey something and and know that people won't be like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. Now, I think that's such a good point as well that 2020 has almost exacerbated that because you see like Twitter numbers growing and TikTok numbers growing. And I think I think you're right. There's something in it to be said that people are just looking for certain things right now from their online experience, given that that's most of our daily experience right now is online. So it makes sense that you would want to go to these places that are asking too much of you. Well, I got, I got, I got this very sweet DM on Twitter from a woman who I, I, I've gotten to know a little better since, but I did not know at the time. And she just said, I just really want to thank you for your vulnerability on Twitter. And it took me aback for a minute because that, that is, it is not intentional. <laughs> oh, like, that's just me. Yeah. Uh, and like, and like, I don't know, I was really proud of that because to me, if I tell someone I love your vulnerability, it is a high compliment, right? It is like, but on the other hand, it's not something strategic that I was like, I'm going to start telling my true story. Like, you know, I'm going to start being my best, my living my best life, whatever. There was no strategy to it. I think I just am really honest with people on Twitter that like some days I'm a wreck and some days like everything feels like it's falling apart. And then other days I feel great and I'm really proud of people and things. You know, it's like we're we're messy human beings and I'd rather be on a platform where it's just like, cool, I get that. I feel the same way. And and like I get such good affirmation, I guess, when, when I I post those things. It's just like, no, regardless of which direction it goes in, there's always somebody who's like, thank you. I, I've been, I've had a hard time expressing this, but I've been feeling it or I've been afraid to express that. But maybe it's just because of my age or where I am. I'm far enough along in my career that it's, I don't worry about like, I don't know, setting some sort of, I, I don't worry about my personal brand. I don't think, I don't think it's an, an age thing. I think that was a millennial thing in my personal opinion, because they're still the Instagram generation, but now you see with Gen Z and anything uh, on the younger end, I think they do like TikTok so much and even Twitter because they kind of hate the culture that their, you know, elder siblings and millennials created. They hate that fakeness and they're actually bringing it back to like a much more real thing, uh, which is changing, you know, which platforms are most popular. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like I love that people can alternate between, like I was saying, you know, between post a thirst trap and then post a thing zooming in on your weird congested pores in your nose or whatever like i i kind of dig that that we've reached a point and that as as a parent you know i like that that's the world my kids are going to go into because there's a lot less mental health toxicity in that approach right if you can just be yourself and be as weird and and funky and and unapologetic then great you will probably be a much happier person than if you're just like ah oh, i got to i got to look as good as that person who blatantly photoshops their pics you know it's like you, you don't get that so yeah that's an interesting insight is there is there a lesson for brands in there somewhere in that you know all these these posts that make you look a certain way and ask you to be perceived a certain way aren't performing as well as posts that are just real i mean i'm sure there is i again i think going back to the beginning which i'm going to say was your your strategy here of like perfectly tying this all back with a bow but you know it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of that brands have to pay attention right you just have to acknowledge that the world changes every single day and that it's it is a it is a river you know where it's like you're stepping into something a little different every day that you go into it. And if you try to believe that things are static or that this is what we do, this is our brand promise and we convey it the same way every day, or if you try to convey perfection with everything you do, it's just, yeah, it's it's unnecessary for one. And it's it just doesn't recognize that the times evolve and that times change. And so it's like, I think it's easy to look back at advertising from the 80s, 90s, early 2000s and compare it to today and say like, wow, the tone of advertising has changed a lot. But I think it's harder to look at advertising from two 
years ago and then look at it now and say like, wow. And, and but it's true. It's changed dramatically um, because, you know, just look at things that came out before Me Too or whatever. Like there's been so many things where you're like, well, that would not come out right. That would not come out now. Like I, and it shouldn't have come out back then. So, I mean, I guess that's to me the lesson is like pay attention and just be willing to try, be willing to be yourself, be willing to have faith in your teams uh, that do your social, because I think the best brands are the ones that that do kind of hand that off to them and and really let them with a clear understanding of brand standards. But, you know, I, I created all the social content for a snack brand here in America called Little Debbie, which is is really, I, I guess, beloved here in, in America. But when I created it, you know, that's a very conservative brand. They, you know, meaning that they just they don't they don't do scandalous advertising. They're very wholesome. And so when we first got into social, I think they had a lot of concerns about is this the right place for us? Is it even going to make sense? And and they kind of were very understandably slow. They were a wonderful client. Don't get me wrong. But like they were understandably cautious about jumping into social. But now their feeds have tons of personality. They really engage with people. They talk about things. And that was a slow, slow process. And I really admire the people who picked that one up after I left and really made it what it is. And I've told them that. I've said like, I, I know exactly how hard it is to help a brand feel comfortable in a space like this. And you guys did it. And that's awesome. So I think it can be done. It's just a matter of like being willing to put yourself out there a little bit, but make sure that your teams understand your brand's principles. And as long as they understand that, they're, they're not going to embarrass you. David, the next question I was going to ask you, because, uh, you know, we talked about those ads from bygone eras and stuff. And I know you'll probably, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I know you'll probably say that, yes, you know, the, the social first ads of today can stand up against anything that was as good as anything in the 90s or the 80s on TV. Is there still any room for those kind of big blockbuster Hollywood director produced um, mega adverts or is that sort of reserved to the apples of this world? Is it the furthest thing from authenticity you can think of? Man, you really kicked my legs out by saying Apple just then, didn't you? Because I was about to say, well, we've had we've had several races. Oh, no, all, all Apple. Sorry. Hold on. No, I mean, there's still room. There's absolutely still room. I think people the, the great thing is that now a lot of ads are watched voluntarily. Right. And which has been my job for 13 years is like find find ads people want to watch. That's a high bar. But like to me, that was, I was never going to write about an ad that no one wanted to sit through uh, unless it was real bad. But like, yeah, you know, so I, I think that's always been a thing that, that people aspire to. But these days you see, again, admittedly Apple, but like even in quarantine, Apple has created a five minute, six minute ad with their their one about scrappy coworkers, which was kind of a sequel to their underdog spot. That thing is beloved. People, millions of people have watched it on purpose. They made a, a nine and a half minute vertical ad about the, about vertical video. I don't think as many people have voluntarily watched that one, but it's still pretty amazing. And so, I mean, I think, I think you can, but I think the number of brands that are investing their limited budgets into that approach is getting smaller and smaller. And I think you're seeing, I think the big effect of quarantine is, is that a lot of them are going to lean further into animation, into CGI, moving forward just because it is it is a bit more affordable, but also they've seen that you can pull it off even when your supply chain completely gets d- disrupted. And like the launch of the the newest Halo video game, I remember they said that their original plan from, from McCann was to have like some footage shot in person and to be on set for all this stuff. And even though it was a very CGI heavy campaign, in the end, they were just like, whatever, we'll just basically like deep fake the parts that we needed to and, and do it all CGI. And it looks incredible. Like it's, you know, so it's, I think that'll be like the lasting thing. You're going to see less of these big Hollywood style uh, productions and, and a little less vanity 
going back to the metrics thing, I think we used to see all these big mega Hollywood star, you know, epic ads. And I, I can't imagine that those things are worth are worth the money. Uh, I think you're seeing a little less of it and you're seeing more like sports endorsers. You know, it's like getting your Michael Phelps or your LeBron James into something is a lot more valuable than getting, you know, George Clooney or whoever. But I mean, I, I could be wrong. Again, I don't get to see the numbers very often, but uh, yeah. And what yeah. about what about in that case? What about um, influencer marketing? Because I think there probably is an opinion that you can nowadays amplify most things to great success through influencers. It may not, you know, do what you want it to, but there's certainly an amplification sort of channel there, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I, I have really mixed feelings on influencer marketing, and I, and I used to do blogger outreach marketing, which of course was kind of the predecessor to modern influencer marketing, and I believed in it then, and I believe in it now. It's just that. I do wonder how brands feel about the results they get. Now, I think the smart brands, Little Caesars most recently on TikTok, you know, the smart ones are partnering with creators and, you know, celebrities or whatever, and then also promoting the content. You know, they're paying to make it the ad that you see right when you load TikTok. But at the same time, it's, you know, it's a celebrity you maybe follow on TikTok and it's and it's created in the format of TikTok, but it's still an ad. So I think to me, that's where the real effectiveness is, is the taking organic content and turning it into paid content is is just a smart way to get the best of both worlds. But a lot of influencer marketing to me is it feels I'm sure it has numbers to back it up. It's definitely a booming field. And I have a lot of friends who work in that field and, and I'm sure are, are very good at it. But I personally, I don't know, it's I think your mileage is going to vary more dramatically in that field than anywhere else. Uh, and you're really kind of putting your life in someone else's hands by hoping that this person doesn't go get COVID-19 at a hype house party or, or you know, go go film a suicide in the in the woods or whatever nonsense like some of the worst ones do. And, you know, those were all both of those examples are ones that brands pumped a lot of money into before, you know, things collapse. I certainly don't don't fault the marketers who were like, can we just pick like super safe uh, you know, people. And there's a reason that Charlie D'Amelio is doing so well, you know, on TikTok. She's a, she seems like a good kid, you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, like, I think there have been just so many burns over the last few years that I would be really gun shy as a marketer about that. Do you think it's worth the risk though? I mean, it depends on your brand, right? Like if you're, if you're a risk taking brand, if you're not risk averse, like I think again, Little Caesars, I thought did a pretty good job of kind of cherry picking which influencers they wanted to work with. They obviously paid them really well because they created custom content but you know sometimes I, I think again if you're if you're like a monster energy drink or whatever and and if you know if your content creators go off the deep end you're gonna look good because that's that's your vibe because you're extreme there's been um there's been one floating on Twitter this week uh it was an influencer campaign from Sky I think promoting true crime documentaries now available and they went to a load of massive influencers including Alfie days um, and Zoe Sugg, who obviously, you know, huge old timers. Um, and Alfie Days came out with a really, really generic post. It's getting a lot of hate at the minute. And a lot of people on Twitter, rightly so, pointed out the fact that, okay, they've obviously gone down the route of let's pick people who we know watched a lot of TV, which is like top line basic. But what they should have done is get in touch with, you know, small scale creators of true crime content, of which there are many, which would have been so much better. Um, so I think like a lot of times when we see influencer marketing done wrong tell me if you disagree or not it's mostly because the brands are asking the wrong people and not because 
the system itself is is broken. Yeah, I mean, I think the only ones we really cover are the ones where it's just such a good fit, right? Like they took, I remember one about some kid who he's one of those kids on YouTube that, and I mean, kid, kid, not like 20 year old, I mean like 10, but he's one of those kids who does unboxing videos or whatever. And a, a car company had him unbox like an entire car made out of Legos, like a full size working car. And, and he, you know, they had him like unbox the model version. Then they told him to go outside and he went out and there's like the functional Lego version of the car out in his driveway. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. You know, that's a good use of that of that kid. And in terms of like a partner, he didn't know what was coming. And I was just like, yeah, makes sense. Unboxing video, like weird car Lego thing. Like it made sense. Whereas like I bet 98% of the partnerships that kid does or whoever, you know, I think you're right. It's most times people just look at the numbers. They're just like, oh, this person has millions of followers. And <laughs> I think we all know that you can be a real trash fire and get millions of followers. I, I think to your point, like, yeah, if you're going to promote a true crime thing, man, find those all those weirdly intense murder podcasts. And like, you know, there's so many people I uh, that either I follow or that they do on the side. It's like, yeah, so many true crime. They, they all have a podcast. Am I wrong? I feel like they all have a podcast. No, they all do. You're right. There's so much out there. I just thought it was like surprising for such a well-established brand to still be making such an early days level mistake. Yeah, I mean, it's like if you're going to do a beer promotion, send it to beer, you know, influencers, like send it to the people who are really into that space. Don't send it to David Dobrik just because he has however many tens of millions of followers. Like what, what what does he have to do with like weird, cool beer innovation or something? You know, yeah, it's like you can you can see it's a lot of times just numbers play and I get it. But I personally doubt that it's very effective. David, it would be a faux pas to have you on this podcast and not ask the question. I feel like we touched on it. But what has been your, uh, well, what has been Adweek's approach to social on various channels? What's worked? What's stuck for you guys? And uh, what rec- what would you recommend, essentially? I mean, you know, Adweek's different. Like, we're... We're a 40-year-old media company, which is fun in the in the sense that I think we pleasantly surprise people. I had someone reach out to me recently and say, like, if you had asked me two years ago, I would have said that Adweek was just a really old company. And which is heartbreaking to me because I've been here a long time. And, and like we were doing we were doing some really interesting things two years ago. But the point is our social presence did not convey necessarily the energy and enthusiasm that our staff has behind the scenes. Like we are not like our competitors. We are very different. And that's why I've been here the whole time. I've never left and I would not leave to go to one of our competitors because Adweek's vibe is my vibe. So because of that, I think the biggest challenge is how do you find ways to convey that in social? And and I was our first social editor many years back. And so I was the first person whose full-time job was to manage our social feeds. And it was honestly, it was really easy. I'm not going to lie because we hadn't really done anything with social. And so building those initial audiences was a breeze compared to a lot of the client work I had done. But we created Adweek Chat on Twitter. That's just hashtag Adweek Chat. We're still doing it every single week. Still gets a lot of really good engagement. I was on the fence about calling it Adweek Check because that felt a little self-centered, but uh, it's worked. I mean, who I can't. It's been running for like six years now, seven years. So who might have who might have questioned it? But I think like where we've seen, obviously, as I mentioned, the biggest growth is is on TikTok because that's a platform that still has a lot of room for growth. And we're we're I mean we're still growing on all of our channels, and we're, we're still picking up YouTube in a lot of ways that surprise me. You know, sometimes it's like we haven't given up on any platform whatsoever. But I think right now it's just we're finding that each platform people are looking to us for something a little different like could we cross post the same stuff on every platform sure but people on linkedin do not want the same content that people on instagram do and definitely not on tiktok you know so it's just acknowledging that each one's different and i personally would rather post setting aside twitter where we do post 
all of our articles and we produce dozens of articles every day. So it's it's quite a lot of uh, content. But I would rather do one really interesting post on each platform each day than to try to do like 10 posts on each platform and cross post it. Uh, it's like I, I just I'm a big believer. And so our social team definitely is a big believer and just respect each platform, respect your audience on each platform and that they are not there. They're there for themselves. You know, they're there. You have to think about what's in it for them. And that's fine. That's not a bad thing. That's great. And so you have to constantly be providing value, whether that's entertainment or information or job advice. And that's a cool challenge. I, I love it. And so I don't know. I don't know if there's really good advice in there. It's just that we do try to keep the audience first and we try to just recognize that we have an awesome job and we get to do we get to talk to a lot of people that other people would love to talk to. And we also try to use our platforms to elevate folks who normally would not get a chance to be elevated and not just use it to be like, here's the same global CCO that you've already heard from a million times. Like, nah. <laughs> yeah. It can be tricky with uh, with B2B brands on social as well. But I think that you made a really good point there of saying, you know, even if you're not like, like a B2C brand with a really exciting product, there's that excitement and that passion that the staff have that it's really important to convey. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like just have fun. I mean, it, that's that's maybe an overstretch, but like I've been at this a long time, like doing social for brands before I came on to Adweek. And, you know, social's been a, a huge part of my professional life since 2007. And even before that, I was like involved in these kind of reader outreach initiatives at, at newspapers, which became social media. And so this has been like my entire career. And the only thing that keeps me going is being surrounded by people who enjoy it as much as I do, who are who are willing to experiment, have fun. I do believe it's serious. I do believe it's tactical and that you have to be strategic about stuff. But if you're not enjoying it, then why would anyone enjoy engaging with it? Right. And I think we've hit a really good stride with with our social content. And we're just kind of taking this approach of like, sure, no, let's try it. Let's try it. And we have a, a pretty young staffer. We have, you know, a, a range of staffers at different ages, at different points in their careers who all kind of weigh in and the the aggregate of that feedback ends up being a really nice post because sometimes we just need we all need or at least people my age need someone to explain a meme sometimes like can you walk me through why this is funny and then and then once you get it you're like okay cool i get it then i think we can do it this way so just having those conversations every day avoiding the temptation to either write it off if you're too old or to not take the time to explain it if you're too young you know just find that happy medium and just keep your energy level that diversity of thought is crucial I mean, I'm glad you, you mentioned Adweek chat. We have one final question, uh, which is what are the best and some worst hot takes that you've seen on Adweek chat? I mean, there's a lot of good takes on there. There's a lot of brilliant takes on it. I, I'm kind of, I've turned into a bit of a lurker on there over the years just because like uh, Wednesday afternoons, for whatever reason, have proven really busy for me. And so other teams run it now and I just try to watch. But I will say, setting aside necessarily Adweek chat, I will say my least favorite takes, which is maybe this is like a lukewarm take of its own. I, 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 it's not to say I don't like the people. I don't like content that is, how can I put this? For how much it, for how much it bothers me, you'd think I would have come up with a good phrase for this, but like wannabe pundits, like people who want to sound like like they're being really intellectual and philosophical about marketing. You know, do you know what I'm talking about? Like, yes, I know the types. Yeah. The one that's like a strategy without an insight is like a barrel without a lid. And you're just like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and then, but I'll go, I'll go into the replies and, and, and every reply is like, 
man, this just blew my mind. Like, you know, so it's working. I shouldn't be judgy. Shut up. I shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it, it, it yeah, certainly, I mean, I don't like Seth Godin, but a lot of people like Seth Godin. I don't like Malcolm Gladwell, but a lot of people like Malcolm Gladwell. And it's very similar, right? It's just like, to me, I would just rather see a broken self, self-referential human, like who can just be like, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm a bit of a train wreck personally, but I tried this thing and it turned out really cool. Like I'd rather see that every day of the year than to see, see someone who I feel like they've been pre-writing their tweets. It's funny to me. Sometimes I'll be so sarcastic on Twitter where I'll post like one of my favorite joke formats, even though it is, it is dumb. And I realize that, but I, it makes me laugh. It's like when someone says it's always the, sorry, I'm, I'm not phrasing this well, hold on. But it's, it's like when you joke about, you know, people always say, how are you doing this? And not, why are you doing this? It's like the, the you know, it's just, you turn like one word around. And so I'll make a dumb tweet where I just say like, people are always say, why are you like this? And never, how are you like this? And and people will take me seriously. So, like not all, but you know, someone, someone will always be like, man, that's really, it's a really good point. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's not. It's a dumb joke, but you know, whatever. It's like, whatever, if it, if it, for some reason, if it meant, and I never correct them. I never say like, I was just being stupid because sometimes, you know, a dumb joke can be mildly inspiring, I guess, but it's the people who just are doing that stuff so on purpose. And so they're trying to be this like thought leader. And to me, the real thought leaders are the ones who are just out there doing stuff. And then they take, take a break every once in a while to maybe tweet about it and talk about what they're dealing with. And then they go back to doing stuff. And I don't know. So that, that's my, those are the only ones where I kind of just roll my eyes. But again, to your point, there's an audience, people, people, people dig it. So not everything has to be for me, you know? Yeah. And I agree with you though. <laughs> it's such a, yeah, it's such a lesson for social in a world of uh, so many sort of diversified audiences. It's, uh, you know, it's not mass media anymore, is it? It's not one thing isn't going to be everybody's uh, cup of tea. Thank you very much for joining us, David. Um, such an insightful yeah, thank you. conversation. Oh, this is wonderful. It means a lot. I really appreciate you having me on. I love the show. Thank you for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please remember to leave us a review on iTunes because it really, really helps and allows us to bring you brand new episodes every single week. This has been the Social Minds Podcast with myself, Theo Watts, Eve Young, and produced by Ollie Thompson.